Tell me who that band is. Uh, like four of you know who that is. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, so um, so that is the band U2 singing a psalm, Psalm chapter 40 out of the Bible. And of course, they've added a little bit of their own flavor to it, a little of their own words to it. Uh, but when I, when I thought of doing this passage, I want you to see that because I have to think back on when David wrote the psalm, Psalm 40, do you think he ever envisioned it being sung in that way? in front of a huge crowd of people in whatever year that video was filmed. He may, not have, he may not have seen it happening that way, but he wouldn't have been too surprised that it was being sung in front of a huge crowd of people because this is, much, this is in much the same way that, that the Psalms were meant to be sung for the nation of Israel. And so um, as I've been thinking through this series, we're calling the series Honest Worship, and, and just you see in the Psalms, throughout the Psalms, you see just these themes of, of just sheer bold honesty before God. That's what you see in many of the Psalms. And as I've been thinking through um, just the idea of music, because many of these Psalms were sung as a congregation, as the nation would worship together, they were sung in large crowds, maybe not like that with all the lights and the fancy sound equipment, but they were sung with the the nation together, as as many as could gather and could hear someone leading music. And, uh, And so as they are being led, I'm thinking about music today, and been thinking about the question, you know, what is it that's so appealing about music? I mean, I know most of you guys in here don't listen to a lot of talk radio, do you? Right? You guys put on the music when you get in your car. You don't listen to talk radio. Um, okay, Anthony does, because he is, he's different in that regard. But, um, but most of you guys, you like to listen to music. And so there's something about just the experience of music and I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been thinking through this series. And you think about music. Music is really a very simple thing, right? Um, someone has a life experience. It might be good. It might be a bad life experience. They start to write down some words to that experience and put their experience into words. They begin to add some music to those words. Then they start to gather a band together, possibly, and uh, maybe a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand people like you see on the screen before you this morning. Um, and they begin singing their songs. And what makes music powerful, it's such a simple formula, but people just love it. I mean, every culture you go to, there's music every, everywhere you go. And there's songs everywhere that you go. And people just clamor for this thing, and, and it's such a simple formula, so why does it work? And I think one reason why it works so well, it's not just the music, it's not just the words, but what happens in music is the song of one person 
becomes the song of many. And so people begin to feel this connection to a certain artist or a certain way of thinking and writing. And they begin to connect to that, that artist, and they begin to connect to their words and their thoughts and what they stand for, and they start to buy into it, and they begin to sing those songs. And so the idea of music is that the song of one becomes the song of many. People join into this one person's story as they lead this music. And so this is kind of what happened in Psalms, is that David is writing about some very personal experiences. And the song of one person, David, becomes the song of many. It becomes the song of the entire nation as they worship together. And so there's this unifying element to, uh, to this kind of a thing. And, um, and I want you to see this morning that all of this was God's idea. It was God's idea for someone like David to be writing songs about his personal experiences and leading people into worship um, as a result of his experiences. This is how God set things up. He wants others to connect to the story of what's happening through David's life and understand their own need for repentance, their own need for confession, their own need for worship, their own need to recognize God as being all-powerful and mighty and sovereign over the whole universe. And so God wants the whole nation of Israel to connect through worship to this one person's story. And so today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 40. So turn with me there. If you don't have your Bibles already turned there. And I literally, I have two slides today. That's it. And it's just the Bible text. So if you like to take lots of notes, today may or may not be your day. I don't know. But um, I've got two slides. That's it. This one and the next one. And that's it. And, uh, but I will kind of walk through this passage with you this morning. And I will read verses uh, 1 through 3 starting off. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, I don't know if, if you guys do this, but do we have any people in here that like to study music lyrics, figure out what they mean? Okay, we got... I think I see three hands. You guys are, why are you guys so ashamed? It's, it's the, this is a noble thing you do, yeah? All right, put your hand up. Be proud. So, um, but you actually get the words out. You like look, Google up the lyrics, and you're trying to figure out what is he saying when he says this, or what is he saying when he says that. And, uh, and this can be really hard because you don't always know the background story behind the song. And this is kind of how it is with Psalms because we don't always know what um, pit David is in. We don't know what he's writing about all the time. We've got to kind of figure it out. And then, but here's what happens, though, and this is true of music today. Because you don't always have to know the story behind the song, do you? Right? Because the, the, the words can still connect to you because you know your own story. And when you're looking at these words, you can be like, yeah, yeah, I've, I can, I've experienced that before. Whatever he's talking about, I've experienced it before. And so we don't always fully know what the story behind, is behind the song, but we can still connect to the story um, or the words that he's communicating. And so if you're someone that does like to write things down, there's, there's like six main movements I want to talk about in this, just these three verses. The first is really obvious, um, is that David is where? Where is David when he writes this? He's in a pit. Someone said a uh, pit of destruction. That's what the word says. Uh, my brain first went to uh, Princess Bride, the pit of despair, right? That scene, remember that scene? Everyone's seen that movie, right? If you haven't, you need to go see that, yeah. 
Um, that's one of the classics. Uh, so the pit of destruction is where David finds himself. And he's in a pit, and he's in a difficult situation. And we don't really know what it is. It might be a literal pit that he's fallen into um, that God rescued him from. It might be an emotional one. It might be because of a sin with Bathsheba. It might be because of his son um, Absalom is trying to kill him. We're not sure why it is he calls himself that he's in this pit. But either way, you and I can relate to it, right? We can relate to being in a really tough, tough situation. And, uh, and so all we know is that David is in this pit, and it says he's in the pit, and it says at the bottom of this pit there is clay, and so back then, there were like these big cisterns, like big wells, abandoned wells. And so there was a pit, and at the bottom of the pit, there's clay. So not only is he in a pit, but he is stuck in the clay at the bottom of the pit. That's a really bad situation to be in. And I got to thinking about this, and this is kind of how it is for us, because often when we suffer... We get suffering stacked on top of suffering, stacked on top of suffering. And so we're not just in a pit. We're stuck in the bottom of the pit, and we cannot get ourselves out. And it reminds me of the story. I think about this family when I was working at a church um, a few years ago before I came to TBC. Um, there was a family that I was kind of close to, and they, uh, their dad got diagnosed with a brain tumor and it was like, he had like two years to live. It was a really tough situation. This is a mid-40s, healthy guy. He had a wife, he had three daughters, and he got brain cancer. And it was just a matter of time. He went through treatment. And over the course of two years, this man looked like he aged 15 years in that two years time frame. And then while he got brain, a brain tumor, his wife um, got breast cancer. And so she's being treated for cancer. He's got cancer. She has cancer. The one girl in college, two girls in high school. And then, um, and then while they're all going through that, their youngest daughter uh, gets into a car wreck. And she, she wasn't like anything major. She didn't have any injuries. But I think she had just had it at this point. And she's in the car wreck, and she was actually physically okay but she just began to freak out inside this car because she was like thinking about her parents and all they're going through as a family. And she had this panic meltdown um, there when she had the car wreck. And so they had to sedate her to like get her to the hospital and just make sure she's okay. And so all we heard was that this girl's been in a car wreck and we're thinking like, oh my gosh, they, how much more can this family take? And so we go to the hospital to see this girl and she's now just sedated on a hospital bed and she's physically okay. But both of her parents are there. Her other sisters are there too. And I just remember looking at the dad who has a brain tumor. Mom has breast cancer. And she's on a hospital bed unconscious this moment. And the dad's just over here stroking the side of her hair as he's waiting for her to kind of wake up from the sedation medication. And I remember thinking to myself, God, how much more can this family take? And, and why is it that this family is getting all of this right now? Like, why, why can't you distribute it out a little bit more, God? Like, why can't you maybe give them just one thing and then somebody else just one thing? And so in our lives, suffering can almost get stacked on top of one another, and suffering can begin to snowball. And this sounds like the kind of situation that David's in. We don't know if um, this pit is a tangible pit for him. But, uh, and we don't know for, I know for us to relate to this kind of a thing, 
sometimes the pit is tangible. Where you can say, okay, mom got sick or dad got sick or this happened or that happened. And this is why I'm in the pit. But sometimes it's just emotional. Right? Sometimes the pit for us, like everything in life is actually going pretty well. But you feel like you're in this just emotional pit and you don't even know why. Right? And so we don't always know. Um, I think for us, it can be something tangible or something that's just emotional for us. And so I want you to see when, um, look at what David does when he's in this pit, in this situation. It says, uh, I want you to see this point. It's, basically, it says that he cries out to God. He's in the middle of this pit. He cries out to God. Raises the question for us, how often do we cry out for God when we're in this kind of a pit? How often do we cry out to maybe just a friend or maybe just keep it inside? But how often do you, do you and I actually cry out for him? Like go to him and cry out for him. You know, I think back to um, probably the worst emotional pit for me when it was the year between uh, college and then seminary when I went to go study to be a youth pastor. So that I had a gap year between college and seminary. And that goes down as probably the most difficult year of my life up to this point. And it wasn't anything, like no one died, no one got cancer, it wasn't anything like that, but it was just this real big emotional pit for me. And the reason why, you know, I don't want to scare you guys, but you know, whenever um, people tell you that, uh, you know, finishing high school is kind of tough and then you get to college, and, um, and I know it's scary to go from high school to college, but at least you kind of have the next four years mapped out if you're going to go to college, right? You kind of know what, what, at least what to expect to a certain extent. The really scary place to be is when you finish college, all right? Amen, Anthony, right? Yes? <laughs> because that's when you're like, okay, God, now what? Like, what am I doing now? And that's what it was for me. And so I had this, I didn't know what I was going to do for a job. Um, I wasn't particularly excited about my career choice at that point, which is going to be journalism, public relations. Do you guys even know what that is, public relations? All right, a few of you do. Um, I had no clue what I was going to do. And then I was in a relationship. It ended. Um, I just felt like the walls were kind of closing in around me. And I, that year goes down as probably the most emotionally tormenting year. I, would, I had a job in downtown Dallas, and I would drive from Arlington to Dallas. I had lots of time to cry. I did. I would, like, get in my car and be, like, put on, like, a sermon and be like, oh, God. And just, like, literally just be, like, wanting God to speak to me and wanting God to talk to me through these sermons. And he just spoke to me during that time. And what I'll tell you is that um, those were some of the most amazing times spiritually in spite of the fact that I was in this pit emotionally. I can still sense just the weight of God's presence when I was going through all that. It was, so, it was so tangible to me when I was walking through those times. So David cries out to God. And so when you're in that kind of a pit, what do you and I tend to do? We tend to just turn to people. We tend to just wait for it to pass. Um, most of us tend to make God the last person that we turn to and cry out for in that kind of a situation. And so um, I want you guys to discuss... Uh, just your first three questions at your tables. If you don't have a discussion sheet, there's some extra ones up on top of the sound booth there, but just questions one to three at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.
All right, guys, I want to bring your attention to a couple of more things, and then we'll have some more discussion here in the end. But I want you to look at just the first, like, uh, word number two and three on the screen. Not, not the next, next there we go. Uh, he, David says that he had to wait patiently for the Lord. And I want you to, like, understand the full weight of what's happening um, when he writes this. Because if you remember, David, we don't know at what point of his life David wrote this psalm. But we have to assume that it was a point where after maybe he'd been anointed as he was going to be the next king. And so that's, that's my assumption anyway. And uh, so it says he waited patiently. Because this tells us that even David, who was going to be the next king of Israel, if he wasn't already, he knew he was going to be the next king. That even he had to wait Even he had to wait on God. And so it says that he waited patiently. And I want to understand this because this is pretty profound. That Couldn't David be someone who would say, I mean, God, like I'm supposed to be king or I am king. I'm not waiting for anybody. Not even you, God. Right? David could have maybe played that card, but it says that he waits patiently for God. And I want you to understand this, that the the person who is humble. The person who is humble, that is the person who is able to wait patiently for God. Anyone that you and I know, or if it's us, maybe it's you, maybe it's me, if we have trouble waiting, and this is not true just of God, but waiting in any situation, that is an indication of pride. Indication of humility is someone who knows how to wait, and they know how to wait patiently. You think about a doctor's office. Who is the person who is flipping out because doctor's not ready to see him yet, right? They're a half hour late for their appointment, and, uh, and the person that fl- that's flipping out is not the humble person, right? In fact, a few years ago, I used to go get, um, anybody here have allergy issues? I've got major allergy issues. So a few years back, I used to get shots every week. I got shots for 17 years in a row, like all the way through, since I was like 17 years old until recently. And I would go down there to the Scott and White place to get your shots for allergies. And one time, this crazy situation happened. This was so great. Um, this guy comes in, and I'm there waiting. You have to like sign your card and then like turn the card in this little little slit in the door there. And then they come and get you based on what time you got there, what, what time you wrote down. Well, this older man comes in, and I guess he wrote down the wrong time. Like, he wrote down a time that was, like, 30 minutes from now, right? And uh, instead of when he actually got there. And so, um, so I get there. I think he was there before me. And so other lady walks up after him as well. And so they call out the lady first. And this older man was there before, before she got there. And so you can see the man was really mad. And he just had this, like, scowl on his face. And he just is like, he's just saying all this stuff to himself, right? And then um, I'm seeing how this guy's reacting. And then they come out and they go, all right, Mr. Tate, come on back. And I'm like, oh, no. Because I was here after that man, too. I was like, oh, no, he's going to kill somebody, you know? And so I said, I go, ma'am, I go, he was here first. I think he needs to go first. And they're like, no, 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 you need to come back here. And I was like, all right. And so I, walk, I have to walk past this older man, like, as I'm going to the door. And this man is out of his chair now. He is yelling. He is cursing. He is screaming at these nurses. And see, now I'm like, oh, it's on. It's on now. So I think I said something to him, 
I'm not sure what it was, but something came out of my mouth to like tell him to like go like smoke a peace pipe or something, you know. And uh, I didn't say it like that. Just don't worry. Um, and and he and he like flips out on me, and I'm just like shaking. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's gonna kill me, you know. And so I get my shot and I leave. And then the next week I go back to get my shot, and these ladies are like, oh, here's our hero. <laughs> And I'm like, no, it's not like that. And I was like, so what's up with that guy? And they're like, oh, he's a retired postal worker. And uh, true story. So why people say things like, you know, don't go postal, right? And so, but, but this guy is, is flipping out. And so any, anybody who has a tough time waiting in any situation, whether it's with God or even in regular just everyday life, the person who has difficulty waiting patiently is not a humble person. There's pride at the center of, of not waiting patiently. Because you're saying, God, you know, give me what I want, when I want it, how I want it. This is especially true of, of relationships where you guys are at right now. If you're someone who cannot wait patiently on God for his timing, his purpose, his plan, then this is pride being lived out in your life because you were taking matters into your own hands. And so the person who is is humble as someone who is waiting patiently for God. And someone who is impatient, that is pride on display. Impatience is always pride on display in your life. And so uh, David waits patiently for God. And then it says, um, so we know in this passage that God pulls David from the pit. We see that here in the passage. And sometimes God pulling us out of the pit is more literal, like a change in circumstances. Sometimes... He might pull you out of an emotional pit while you're still in the pit, literally. He might pull you up emotionally, but meanwhile, while your life circumstances are very much the same, and things have not always improved in that regard, but he pulls you out of this emotional pit that you might be in. And so, um, something else I want you to see, and this is really, really powerful, is that in verse 3, it says, he put a new song in my mouth. And I love that because um, what you see from this passage is that David is a songwriter. He's not just talking about a new song, but a new attitude, a new heart attitude towards God. And I w- don't want you to miss this. If you and I don't experience suffering, we don't get the new song. If we don't experience suffering, we don't get the new song. And I don't just mean a literal new song. I mean you don't get the new attitude, the new heartfelt gratitude towards God when he pulls you up from the pit unless you've been down in the pit, right? And, um, and so I, the best way to illustrate this that I know of is just you and I, we, we breathe air all the time, right? It's just, we do it. It's just natural, obviously. Um, we breathe air continuously. When do you really appreciate air? When someone's holding you under the water, right? When someone is, is trying to suffocate you is when you come out of the water and you're like, <gasps> right? I'm going to cough, <clears throat> Right? And so when I, was, when I was a kid, I was the, the third of three boys. I mentioned this before. So I got beat up a lot as a kid, teased a lot as a kid. 
And, and one thing my middle brother would do, and he loved doing I don't know why he did this to me all the time. He did this to me all the time. He would we'd get in the creek behind our house or at the pool, and he would just come over to me and just hold me under the water for like 10 seconds. Now, as a four- or five-year-old, that's going to really freak a four- or five-year-old out. So for the first part of my life, I was terrified of water because my brothers would hold me under the water, and they'd like pretend like they're going to drown me. And I still have no clue why my parents never intervened, right? Like, I'm thinking back going, like, why did mom and dad never say, like, hey, stop it? <laughs> you know, never happened. But they would always do this. And, and then they'd be like, I'd be on the side of the creek or the pool. I'd be like, not in the way. Like, why aren't you getting in? I'm like, because I'm scared. Oh, what are you, a chicken? I'm like, well, wait, this is not making sense, right? And so when you and I have a moment, we're about to suffocate, and you, you don't have air, the moment you come out of the water is when you fully appreciate that next breath of air. And in a way, when you and I suffer, and we're in a pit like David is in a pit in this passage, it's when we come out of that pit that the new song arises. And we have a new song because we have this new appreciation for who God is, and His grace, and His mercy in our lives. And so you don't get the new song unless there is suffering. I know this sounds like some kind of a sadistic God I'm describing. I'm not trying to describe some God holding you under the water. I'm not trying to describe a God like that. But I will tell you that he has a way of using suffering and sin sometimes in his sovereignty where he lets us have a new song because we've experienced him in a new and fresh way. The next thing I want you to see is that other people, look at the last part of the passage here, Many will see, not that part, go back again, sorry. Um, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So when they see someone live out this faith uh, before God, many people will look at that person, how they're living through suffering, and they're going to put their faith and trust in God based on how you respond to suffering in your life. So no pressure, right? And... And so when you and I go through this whole process, many people see and fear and put their trust in the Lord as a result of how you and I respond to suffering. And so God doesn't just allow suffering in our lives for our sake. It's not just to teach us a lesson. It's to teach other people a lesson as well. And I think of a couple of stories. Have you ever seen someone really press into God when pressing into God seems unthinkable? So I think, obviously, of, of Pastor Gary, first person I think of, when he got eye cancer a couple of years ago. And I'm thinking to myself, of course, I'm, I'm just worried sick for him and his wife and just the church, and we're all in this real emotional uh, roller coaster when he first told us about it a couple of years ago. But then I'm watching him live out his faith as he has some form of cancer, right? And it's a testament to other people, and people see how he responds. And I think about the Ron Slavens with trying to adopt a girl from the Ukraine and how they keep getting like these blockades keeping them from adopting this one girl from the Ukraine. And yet they keep after, they keep on in the midst of suffering, keep on ministering to people. In many ways, ministering out of their suffering so others can see and fear and put their trust in God. And so witnessing... Most of us think of witnessing as just this one thing. It's like you witness to someone, you tell them the, the four points of the gospel, and that's what it means to witness to someone. That's part of it. 
That's a huge part of it. But witnessing also happens out of our suffering. How we live in the midst of suffering is a huge part of our witness. And so people can see how you respond to suffering and they can think to themselves, you know, this person, they're still clinging to Jesus in the midst of their suffering. There might be something about this Jesus. And I might want to think about putting my faith and trust in him based on how they're living because he seems like a pretty big deal in their lives. And so I want you to see one other thing in this, uh, just these first three verses. I want you to see a picture of salvation in these first three verses because um, you can see it here pretty easily. Um, Because David is stuck in a pit. You and I are stuck in a pit of sin, separated from God because of our sin. Can't free ourselves. God inclines himself. That means God bends himself or leans himself, meaning he stretches out to him. And this is just what Jesus does for us. Jesus inclines himself to us and pursues us. Romans 5.8 says, while we are still sinners, he died for us. God sets his feet on a rock. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our rock. And he also says that, God says that he gives David a new song. And when Jesus saves us, he changes us from the inside out. So there's this new attitude, new song happening in our lives as a result of our salvation. I want you to look down at um, verse 8. Verse 8, because in this passage now, we see that faith is not meant to be a private thing. People in our world today will say things like, yeah, faith is like a private thing to me. It's not really a, it's it's a private thing. It's a personal thing. But when you see, look at verse 8 through 10, that is totally not true. Because David is meant to express what God's done in his life and do it in front of the whole nation of Israel, the congregation. And so faith is meant to be public, not private. Look at verse 8. He says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And so people are going to see how you live. And so you'll hear people say things like, you know, well, I just want to have people see my life. And I want my life to be a testimony. And that's true. It should be a testimony. You see, in the first part of the passage, David's talking about the way that he, the way that he lives through suffering. People are going to see and fear and trust in the Lord as a result. That's true. But at some point, you've got to tell them. At some point, you've got to share the testimony of suffering. You've got to share the testimony of what God's done in your life to other people. Faith is never meant to be this private, personal thing. It is that, but it's meant to be a public thing. It's meant to be something that you express, as he talked about in the service this morning. How many of you guys heard Claude Hickman up there in the main service? Raise your hand. A few of you did. So you heard the message this morning that faith is not meant to be some just personal thing between you and God. That when God takes you through suffering, the testimony of suffering is... Look at what Christ has meant to me in the midst of my suffering, and he wants to offer you the same kind of life that he gives me. He wants to offer you that same kind of life. And so most of us, I think, and this includes me, we're public about the things that don't matter. We're public about 
what we ate for dinner on social media, right? We are public about the things that don't matter, and we're private about the things that matter the most. And so our faith is not meant to be private, it's meant to be public. And so you share what God's doing. I want you to catch this one last thing, and we're going to have you guys do more discussion here in a moment. Your testimony is not just about the moment you came to faith in Christ, how you came to faith in Christ. Your testimony is much more than that because your testimony is also about what he's currently doing in your life, what he's currently convicting you of. And so you also share that as well. You share how he's growing you. You share how he's convicting you. You share how he's forgiven you. You share how he is helping you through suffering in your life. And this becomes your full, the full picture of your testimony. This is partly why we do things like table discussions and Wednesday night groups. Because we really believe that the way you're, you're going to grow is through that kind of interaction with other people. So that they can hear your story. You can tell your story to them and vice versa. And you begin to grow each other as a result of it. Because your testimony is a lot more than just the initial moment that you came to Christ at salvation. It is how he is growing you, how he's convicting you. And the testimony of suffering is seriously powerful because when someone sees you clinging to Christ in the midst of suffering, if anything will turn an unbeliever into a believer, my hope is that that would be it. They would see how you live in the midst of suffering And even an unbeliever might come to know Christ as a result of seeing how you live in the midst of suffering. I'm going to pray for you, and you guys can have some more discussion here at the end. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your grace. Thanks so much for your um, steadfastness. The fact that we get to um, be in a relationship with you as the God of this universe is just an astounding fact. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that... um, that for the ones in this room that are going through these like pit experiences right now, that they would, uh, would cling to you in the midst of that. They'd cry out to you in the midst of that. And that many would come to know you as a result of their testimony as they, as they suffer well um, with you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and finish your discussion here in a moment, then you'll be dismissed.